Well, good morning, Westridge. Let's play a little game of Would You Rather to start uh, the talk this morning. Would you rather, you have three choices. Would you rather be immediately happy, enduringly content, or incredibly wealthy? Which would you choose? That's a question that I came across in a survey this week. I love the question, but the survey was an informal survey, and it was done 23 years ago, so I thought, yeah, it's been more than two decades. Let's see if attitudes have changed. So I posed the question to my friends on Facebook, and the response was, again, a small sample size like the original survey, but it backed up the previous survey. Overwhelmingly, people said, 85% of people said they would rather be enduringly content. Now, there were two interesting learnings for me from the survey in addition to that response. One was that in neither poll did anyone choose immediately happy. I think there's something inside every one of us that realizes happiness quickly fades. It can change from one conversation to the next, one event in our day to the next. The second learning was a little more surprising. And the research data was very, very clear on this, that incredible wealth does not produce contentment, nor does it foster as much generosity as we think it might. That said, I think 10 out of 10 people surveyed would still like to take $100 million from the lottery and try to beat the odds of that survey. Let's try to prove that one wrong, right? The reality is, if we are gifted with or we earn large sums of money in our life, it doesn't make us content. And we tend to live out our already established patterns of generosity or frugality or selfishness. This morning, as we wrap up our series in Philippians, The Pursuit of Happiness, I want us to consider this idea of contentment and how it impacts our pursuit of happiness. By the time Paul writes these words in Philippians, he has been wrongly imprisoned for more than two and a half years. He's awaiting trial, and he doesn't know it, but he will eventually be convicted and executed even though he's innocent. At this point, he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. He's isolated from his friends and from his co-workers. And in that context, he writes these amazing words. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I want us to dig into that verse this morning and that idea of contentment. Just what is contentment? And how can we find enduring contentment in our lives? So here's what Paul says in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Paul makes it very clear that his contentment is firmly rooted in his faith in God. 
He's not content because he lives above or detached from or independent of his circumstances. He is content because he is deeply dependent on Jesus in the midst of his circumstances. Now, I love that in just three verses, Paul says twice, I have learned how to be content. Contentment is not simply a character trait that some of us have and the rest of us don't. Contentment is something each of us can learn in the course of our everyday life with Jesus. I believe that finding contentment is the first and most important step that we need to take towards true and lasting happiness, what the Bible refers to as joy. But in a lifetime of attending church, in a lifetime of reading and studying the Bible, I've really only heard about how we need to be content. The fact that we need to be content like Paul, but I've seldom heard practical ideas on how we develop that contented life. How do we learn it? That's frustrating to me because when someone offers a call to action without clear next steps, all it leads to is confusion. All it does is steal hope. So I want to offer three ideas that can help us learn to be content. They're not the only three ideas. There are dozens of ideas in Scripture and out on the web. They are not sequential ideas, steps one through three. They're not meant to be taken in order, and they're not ranked by importance. I simply offer them to you and ask you to pursue the one step that you feel like the Holy Spirit is leading you to take. And I offer all three of them with this caveat. I believe that learning to be content is a lifelong pursuit. It will take effort. It will take intentionality on our part to learn and live a contented way of life. So with that said, let's just jump in. The first idea that I want to offer to you is that to learn contentment, we have to decide who is in control of our life. We don't have to look very far or very hard to find individuals or even groups of people who would love to control our decision-making processes. People are full of ideas on what we should do, no matter what the challenge is that we're facing or their lack of experience in dealing with anything like it. In fact, one psychologist was bold enough to say it's rare to find someone who is uninterested in dictating what we should think or do or feel. Now, to be fair, that doesn't mean people are bad. Their desire to control our decisions or to help shape them at the very least comes from a well-intentioned place very often. They want to help us grow, or at the very least, they want to help us avoid what they perceive to be a bad decision that's going to cause us pain or struggle. So the question for you this morning is, who's trying to control your life, or who may actually be in control. It could be your parents or your kids. It could be your peers, your spouse, your employer, or your fellow employees. I think one of the easiest ways to spot these unhealthy relationships is to look for what's called a psychological bartering that's taking place. Psychological bartering is when we surrender control of something in our life 
in exchange for something else. And typically what we exchange for is acceptance or affirmation. And what happens is, when the bartering is going on, whether we realize it or not, if we stop the process and refuse to make the transaction, the person who's trying to barter with us often will withdraw from the relationship. If you've got anybody in your life who withdraws affirmation, withdraws acceptance, when you don't do what they think you should do, that's psychological bartering. The idea, unfortunately, took me quickly to my relationship with my parents. I loved them dearly, and they were wonderful people, but this was something they did. Specifically, they didn't approve of the way that Connie and I were raising our two kids. And I know that because they sat me down and told me that in my mid-30s. That's a fun conversation to have, right? Now, I already knew that, though. It didn't come as a surprise to me. Because for weeks, my parents had been withdrawing their love, their attention, even answering phone calls. And it was a sign of their disapproval that I'd gotten used to. Fortunately, Connie and I were parenting by intention, not by accident. And we had always been willing to listen to and to evaluate healthy input, but it didn't matter who it came from. We had already decided that we would huddle up, just the two of us, talk about it, and decide if that was something we were going to incorporate into our parenting or not. So I made it clear to my parents in that conversation that the decisions about how we parented our kids were ultimately ours, not theirs. We would decide how our kids were raised, and that didn't go over well either. But we were unfazed. Because we knew who was in control. You might actually say in that instance, we were content with our decision. We knew who was in control. Now, don't get me wrong. We've always accepted wise counsel in our life from family and trusted friends. But being willing to listen doesn't require us to cede control of the situation or the decision. Enduring contentment will require us to strongly resist every outside effort to seize control of our lives. It's an unrelenting battle. It will demand that at our core, we know who we want to be in control, and that's taking place. And as believers, the Scripture calls us to surrender that control to Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, We must worship Christ as our Lord, as our ruler, as our leader, in our life. But even Jesus himself doesn't take away our free will. We get to choose to follow him. So we have to know who's in control. That's the first step towards getting into a contented way of life. Second, if we want to learn contentment, I think we also have to seek a, set aside unhurried chunks of time to examine our life. In Psalm 139, David prays a beautiful, bold prayer. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That beautiful prayer is the essence of this step 
it calls us to examine, to dig deep in our life, to ask tough questions, literally to pray and ask God, show me my anxious thoughts. Show me what's keeping me from being content. So I want to just ask you as a first piece of homework for this week to be willing to pray that prayer, to set aside an unhurried chunk of time, sit down and just say, God, please show me what's going on in my life, what choices I'm making that are keeping me from being content. I would encourage you in those moments to ask and then just be still and listen and wait. And when thoughts come to mind, don't judge whether they're right or wrong at first. Just start recording them. Whatever truth God shows you and create a document that you carry with you. I'd suggest for the next two or three weeks, whether it's a notebook or a piece of paper or it's something on an electronic device carry those thoughts with you and read them multiple times every day let God continue to speak to you after that unhurried block of time you'll cross things off a list and go no that really wasn't right or you'll add other things but over time as challenging as it may be this practice can help us cement our struggle and our desires clearly in our brain. I believe that in order to break our deeply ingrained behaviors, we have to first see them. Then we have to feel the pain of the disconnect between who we are and how we're living and the life that we really want to live. And allow the clarity that comes as you see that dissonance to be a strong motivator for change in your life. Our souls will wither and die without consistent times alone with God to take a deeper look at our life. And that's why you will constantly hear us as we teach from this stage talking about regularly setting aside those chunks of time to read your Bible, to pray, to listen to God, we need those quiet spaces to hear from God. We need those spaces to recalibrate our soul if we're ever going to learn to be content. So carve out that time this week and spend it alone with God. One more idea. To learn contentment, our decisions have to be guided by our values. We all have a set of values. Each one of us has our own unique set of values for our life. And though you might not be able to name them, you're living by them. They may be informed by all kinds of influences in our life. But as Christians, our values are also to be informed by Scripture. And though we might not be able to quote chapter and verse that help shape that value, hopefully, our set of values is based on teachings that we've heard and scriptures that we've read in the Bible. Inevitably, we are going to come to situations in our life where our values are bumped up against by decisions that we face. And sometimes we get into really tough spots with hard decisions, 
and we start to waver on our values, and we think, well, maybe I should just change my values in mid-decision-making process. The great thing about having those values, about knowing what they are, is that they can serve as an anchor that we can trust when emotions run high and time runs short. So your second piece of homework I'd love to ask you to do this week is to take some time to sit down and think about what are the values in your life that guide your decisions? And how do you want them to impact those decisions? Again, I think it's super helpful just to start making a list. And you may end up with pages of things that you would consider as values in your life. But really narrow it down to three to five values that you want to be a part of your decision-making process. You might pick honesty or fairness or kindness or generosity or grace. And once you've chosen them, what does it look like to let a value inform our decisions? Well, let me give you an example. Imagine tomorrow morning, Monday morning, you wake up and you get an invitation to the wedding of a close friend's daughter. Now, you're really good friends with the individual who invited you, but you barely know the daughter and you don't know her future husband at all. And so your mind starts thinking about the wedding and whether or not you're going to go. So one side of your brain starts remembering that weddings really aren't all that fun, right? The service is long, the pastor drones on and on and on. Um, not me, of course, but other pastors drone on and on. And then the reception is even longer. And where are, you, are we even going to know anybody there? And, and then they do all those goofy dances where they drag everybody out on the floor. I'm kind of projecting myself onto your scenario. They do the, you know, the chicken dance and the electric slide, and that's just not your thing. So you're starting to wonder if you really should go. And then you're almost cemented in your decision when you remember that the food that's catered at most weddings isn't really what you would order for a nice night out. Then the other side of your brain kicks in. And you start to remember the names of some people who will be at the wedding. Old friends that you may not see again for years. This is a great opportunity. You remember how you love the beauty of a wedding. You love how certain aspects of weddings always inspire you. And for a moment, you're caught in ambivalence. Should I go or should I say no? What if... In your life, a high value for you is to celebrate what's right in the world. I actually know an individual who that's one of his core values. I want to celebrate what's right in the world. If it were your daughter, you would invite your friend to come celebrate what's right in the world with you. You'd be thrilled if your friend said yes. You'd be disappointed if they said no. And in an instant... Your ambivalence is gone. Your value has let you know you really need to go. Now, that may be a close call, but I really do believe that if we let our values influence our decisions, they will usually lead us in the right direction. And the authenticity that comes out of that process will inevitably lead us to enduring contentment, 
deep in our souls. Bottom line in all of this is this. When we learn to be content, we will develop this inner peace in our lives. The kind of a peace that says the storms might rage over the open sea, but they can't shake me. Contentment doesn't waver. It holds firm. Even when we're struggling to get the kids ready to go to school for the third morning in the row, even when we're logging the kids onto their computers for remote learning for the third time that morning, it doesn't waver when we negotiate at work which employees are going to be furloughed and which employees are going to stay. It isn't swayed by nagging loneliness, by a frantic drive to work, by a bad x-ray, or by a pink slip. When we learn enduring contentment, we will be able to echo Paul's words in verse 13. And they will be said with an embedded confidence. I can do everything. I can walk through any loss or any gain, any struggle or any victory, any success or failure because my contentment my hope and my eternity are anchored in Christ who gives me strength. Would you pray with me? God, we want to pray David's bold prayer right now. Search us. Know our hearts. Speak to us. And it's honestly, God, it's a little bit scary to ask you to point out any anxious ways in us or any fearful ways or any ways that keep us from trusting you or experiencing that deep contentment that Paul had. So God, here and now, we affirm again your rightful place in our life. We affirm our desire to have you as the one who leads and guides our life. God, show us the ways this week that we put ourselves or we put others in control of our life and give them the place that belongs only to you. God, lead us, guide us, teach us, so we might learn to be content. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.